Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory and the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Lecture Series. This series began, it was begun, by Professor Andrew Ellicott Douglas in September of 1922. And I have to say, that was, what, 93 years ago. And I'm happy to say that Stewart Observatory has provided lectures for the public, free of charge, every year since 1922, except for the four years that the United States was involved in World War II. So therefore, this is, by my count, our 89th season of presenting lectures to the public. And we have been podcasting these lectures since uh, 2009. So I welcome those of you watching the podcast uh, on iTunes University at the University of Arizona iTunes U website and streaming live from the Stewart Observatory website, www.as.arizona.edu. Before I introduce tonight's speaker, I have a few um, announcements. You can see I have a pretty full schedule for you. you don't, you're already here, so you don't need to know about the September 14th lecture. We have a total of eight lectures planned for you this semester. Uh, some of you who saw our early schedule saw that our last lecture was supposed to be on December 14th. That's final exams week here at the university. And there actually is probably a Spanish exam in this room that Monday night. So I had to move it up to December 7th, and it's okay with Mark Sykes. So we're going to get the latest from Dawn and New Horizons at the end of the semester. But this is also the semester that we have the Mark Aronson Memorial Lecture. So take note, that's on a Friday night. And I just got the title of the talk from Vasily. He just sent it this morning. But it's going to be about cosmology, the Big Bang Theory. You know, he, it's a long title, something like cos, cosmic archaeology or something like that. But we also have another lecture this week. I'm also president of the, our local chapter of Phi Beta Kappa. And every year, National Phi Beta Kappa pays to have an eminent scholar come to visit us. Last year we had Timothy Rowe from the University of Texas who gave the talk on what happened to the dinosaurs. This year we got a physicist. When we get the musicology professor, I don't, you know, put it into the public evening series. We do it over at the music school. But Professor Campbell is a physics professor at Boston University. And he's going to talk about nonlinear science. And that lecture is this Thursday night. So because we're having two lectures this week, I'm skipping the rest of September. And then our next lecture after Thursday will be October 5th. But uh, that uh, talk on nonlinear science, he's going to talk in particular about the orbits of the moons of Pluto. And weather permitting, you know, we'll look at Pluto through the telescope. Also, the telescope will be open tonight, again, weather permitting. It's iffy. I will let you know probably at the end of the talk. I'll run up at about 20 minutes after 8 to see if they're open or not. If there is are any students from Pima Community College or University of Arizona that are here for an assignment, I am the person who will stamp your assignments. I'll do it at that table down there at the conclusion of the question and answer period. So I would now like, oh yes, and of course I would tell you to sign our email list, but Ruth took care of that. She caught you as you were coming in. And thank you for doing that. We'd like to build an email list so that we can get you information when there are changes to our schedule and when there are special events. All right. Okay, you're wondering what's going on. Why doesn't he have a tie on? Okay. It's, it, it, right? And I always do. Except in honor of tonight's lecturer. Okay. 
I have a shirt from the Varko Varkochevsky Observatory, the Varkochevsky Observatory at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And I just wanted to show our friends in Kansas City because I received this shirt in the mail last week, courtesy of the Astronomical Society of Kansas City and Joe Wright. So, yes. So I just wanted to show you that, yes, I, I got the shirt, Joe, and I'm proudly wearing it for Dan's talk. Um, this is the staff observatory shirt for the observatory at the university where Professor McIntosh teaches. And, uh, you know, the members of the Astronomical Society of Kansas City regularly watch our podcasts at their meetings. So I want to thank them for their support. Daniel McIntosh, bachelor's degree in astrophysics from the University of California at Los Angeles, otherwise known as UCLA. Then he came here. He was one of ours. Graduate student here. His PhD in astronomy is from the University of Arizona. So he's a wildcat for life. Um, his first postdoctoral position was at the University of Massachusetts, which is in Amherst. And he's done a lot of work with the Hubble Space Telescope. And it finally landed him a professor's gig at the University of Missouri at Kansas City, where he is now. And he's spending an extended time here uh, collaborating with uh, other astronomers here at Stewart Observatory. He gave our scientific symposium last Thursday afternoon. And it is a pleasure to introduce, to kick off the 89th season of the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Lecture Series, Professor Daniel H. McIntosh, Reflections on Hubble's 25th Anniversary, The Past, Present, and Future of U.S. Astronomy. Dan. Thank you very much, Tom. That was a great introduction. And thank you all for coming tonight. It's a pleasure to be here to do a public talk where I got my PhD. I actually think I did one on special relativity as a grad student about 20 years ago. Um, so, as many of you probably know, Hubble turned 25 years old this spring. On April 24, 1990, on the Space Shuttle Discovery, this most famous and well-known scientific instrument was launched. This machine is about the size of a school bus, and it was deployed from the Space Shuttle by this um, brave crew and placed in orbit just 350 miles above the Earth's surface. A lot of people think the Hubble is much farther away. It's just above the surface. You need a little louder? Okay. Let's try that. Is that good? Better? Thanks, Tom. So now, 25 years later, in five servicing missions, the Hubble's actually better than ever. So, as a scientist and as an educator and as a citizen of the United States, I've thought a lot about the 25 years of the Hubble Space Telescope, this great space observatory. And I've reflected on many things about it. And tonight I'm going to share with you what is the legacy of the Hubble Space Telescope, who was Hubble that the telescope is named after, and how was astronomy different in his day compared to today, and how much did the Hubble Space Telescope cost, and was it worth it, and how do these questions 
relate to the future of space science and astronomy in the US. Now I think one of Hubble's greatest legacies is the fact that it's inspired the public so much with images like this. Like you, I see a gorgeous image. As a scientist, I see the death of a star and a newborn stellar corpse. The dot at the center of the picture is literally a shining diamond, a newborn corpse left over from the death of this star. This is what's probably going to happen to our sun in four or five billion years. If you go on the internet, you can find many lists of the Hubble's greatest images. I don't know how you can possibly choose. There are so many of them. But especially as an educator, I think of the power of these images, the power of these images to engage all students from all walks of life, the power of these images to inspire us and to make us think about the different sizes and different scales of distance in the universe, different objects, different processes in the universe, discoveries, mysteries, new findings that explain these mysteries. I see different types of objects like the birth of stars in this picture. We all know Saturn. Here is two galaxies doing a cosmic dance. There's another picture of star death. A city of galaxies, the biggest structures of the universe. A cousin to our own home galaxy, a galaxy like our own Milky Way. These are two monster galaxies, much bigger than the Milky Way, colliding. Some hidden baby star behind a dense cloud. Cosmic dust. Again, cosmic death, the end of the sun, will be something like that. A newborn cluster of stars. The leftover scraps of the violent explosion of a massive star when it dies. And finally, uh, something near and dear to my heart, two galaxies that are in the process of colliding and forming one giant galaxy. This is actually the kind of astronomy that I do. I study these objects. Now, besides the legacy and inspiring the public, this quote is really true. This has been probably the most productive scientific instrument in mankind's history. It's had huge revolution on our understanding of the cosmos. Now, you can map this one way, which is kind of boring, maybe it only means something to administrators or to other scientists, which is the fact that the Hubble Space Telescope has produced now 13,000 scientific publications. Uh, three quarters of my scientific publications are related to Hubble Space Telescope data. So it's a very productive scientific instrument. But I think more interesting and more important are the Hubble Space Telescope's greatest achievements. And its great achievements are directly related to mankind's burning questions about our place in the cosmos. Questions like how old is the universe? How many stars and planets are there? How did our solar system and the Earth form? And what is the fate of the universe? How old is the universe? These are all questions we've had for a long time, and Hubble has touched on all these questions. So in the next couple minutes, I'm going to briefly go over five of Hubble's greatest discoveries and achievements that basically most scientists agree on, starting with my favorite. 20 years, 20 years ago, in 1995, the Hubble Space Telescope took what many considered to be the most important image ever taken, this image right here. At the time, it was the deepest image ever taken by a telescope, 
And what this image revealed was over 3,000 distant galaxies never seen before by human eyes. Now, to get an idea of the impact of this image, imagine that you take a blank, tiny region of the sky that we think basically is empty, at least of nearby galaxies. I'm talking about an image so small that if you hold a penny at arm's length, like in this picture, the area on the sky is as big as Abe Lincoln's eyeball on the penny. It's a little tiny speck. And now you take an even deeper image than the image I showed you from 20 years ago. Not the Hubble Deep Field, but the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. We took this in 2007. I say we, I mean the astronomy community. I didn't take it. In this image, even deeper than the previous one, we can simply count every single speck in this image. Almost every speck is a galaxy. There's 10,000 galaxies in that image. And to give you a size of how, uh, to give you an idea of the size of this image on the sky, the size of the spot that Hubble spent 11 days sitting in one place looking at one spot, it's that big compared to the full moon on the sky. Every spot except for a few, the little objects like this that have crosses, those are nearby stars in our own galaxy, kind of right in front of our face. Everything else is a distant galaxy. And we can do simple counting. We can count how many little specks like that in the sky does it take to cover the entire sky, the entire dome of the sky above us, and the entire dome of the sky on the other side of the Earth. And then multiply that by 10,000 galaxies, and we now know how many galaxies are in the universe. The universe is full of literally billions and billions of galaxies. Now, this means that stars in the universe are more common than grains of sand on the Earth. When I teach my intro astronomy classes, I love to hammer this point home. If you go out and count every single grain of sand on the Earth's beaches and under the Earth's oceans and seas, that's basically how many stars there are in the universe. Now, those numbers are definitely astronomical. What does 150 billion galaxies even mean? That's a hard number to imagine. One way to think about it would be as if every single person on Earth had nearly two dozen of their own galaxies to play with. Each one of these galaxies, a universe, an island universe of billions of stars, just to give you an idea of how many stars and galaxies there are in the universe. Now, this image is also a time machine. Every single one of these little specks, the little tiny ones, the bigger ones, are distant galaxies of countless stars. And we can use information about those galaxies, how far away they are from us, to act like a time machine, to trace the history of the cosmos. These galaxies are full of so many stars, they're very bright, so we can see them at great distances. The galaxies that are nearer to us, it takes their light less time to reach us, still millions or even hundreds of millions or billions of years, but the galaxies that are most distant from us, it takes almost the age of the universe for their light to have traveled to us. And so looking at galaxies at different distances is like looking at galaxies at different points back in time. And so by taking images like this, we study the development of galaxies, or in other words, what we call in astronomy and astrophysics, the evolution of galaxies. We're literally comparing galaxies nearby this is today in the universe, 13.8 billion years after the Big Bang. That's how old the universe is. 
And then we can go back. We can look at galaxies when the first cities of galaxies formed. We can look back even further to when galaxy development, galaxy growth was maximum. This is another thing I do. I study galaxies at cosmic time and compare populations at different times. And from that, I can infer, kind of like a detective uh, or demographer, um, the evolution of galaxies. So besides this very deep image, another one of Hubble's great achievements, actually one of the main primary purposes key projects for the Hubble Space Telescope when it was launched was to actually accurately measure the age of the universe. At the time, in 1990, when we launched the Hubble Space Telescope, astronomers were in two different camps, and there were big arguments at conferences, almost fistfights, literally, about is the universe 10 billion years old or is it 20 billion years old? Now, maybe that seems kind of like a funny thing to argue about, but we did. And with Hubble, we can actually pin down the age very accurately to the number I told you a moment ago, around 14 billion years. The way this is done, this is image on the left is an image of a nearby spiral galaxy, kind of like the Milky Way we live in, but a little bit different. And that's an image taken from a ground-based telescope, like a telescope on Kitt Peak. And it's pretty, and it has a lot of detail, but this funny little cutout right here is a Hubble Space Telescope image of part of that galaxy. And one of the great key parts about the Hubble Space Telescope is that it can resolve such tiny detail. It can see very, very, very tiny detail. In fact, it can see such detail in this image that it can actually pick out individual massive pulsating stars inside of this distant galaxy. And these pulsating stars are special because they allow us to measure the distance to that galaxy, and from that, astronomers can calculate the age of the universe very accurately. And so that was another one of Hubble's great achievements. That was planned. Some of Hubble's achievements were not planned, such as figuring out what the fate of the universe was. Besides being able to measure really fine detail, Hubble can also see very, very distant galaxies, as I showed before. So in the top panel, there's three pictures the little fuzzy blue blob, the fuzzy orange blob on the right, and in the middle, the kind of orangish yellow blob, all three of those are very, very distant galaxies, probably about 10 billion light years away, billion with a B. From Hubble Space Telescope, those pictures are taken. Then a little bit later, pictures are taken of the same three galaxies, and in each picture, you notice a bright star-like object. That is a single star in that galaxy ending its life in a very violent explosion we call a supernova. And those explosions are so violent that for a short time, a couple weeks, that individual star shines literally as bright as the billions of stars inside of that galaxy. Now that's pretty cool just by itself. But what's really cool is that these exploding stars, these supernovae in distant galaxies, act as sort of a yardstick that allow astronomers to measure very accurately how fast the universe is expanding at that point in time, back then. And we can compare it to how fast it's expanding now. And astronomers made a very startling discovery, which we call dark energy. It's such an important discovery, it won these three American astronomers the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2011. It's, I think, the only fourth or fifth time in the Nobel history of physics that it was awarded to astronomers. Uh, one thing I just want to note, we didn't know those three galaxies were going to have a supernova go off. What's great about Hubble, we can see, and it takes a lot of work, we can observe 
thousands and thousands of distant galaxies, and we know that a galaxy like that, about every 100 years, on average, will have one of those explosions go off. So if you observe enough of them, you'll find some later on that have an explosion, like these three right here. That's just the three that had an explosion. How does this get to the fate of the universe? So we call it dark energy, this idea that the universe it had a big bang, and the universe has been expanding, and you would think over time that, ex that expansion would slow down. It would kind of poop out. Instead, it's getting faster and faster and faster as time moves on. And that is really counterintuitive, really a weird idea to think about. And it's so strange, we actually have no idea why, it, why that is true. We have no, no real idea why the universe should be doing this. We believe the measurement that these guys made, that's why they won the Nobel Prize, but we don't know what it is, and so we call it dark energy. What does it have to do with the fate of the universe? This is sort of a sad story. <laughs> I apologize. Hopefully, well, hopefully, we have no idea, hopefully. Maybe this is just what the universe is doing now and for the next many billions of years, and at some point in time, the universe will stop doing what it's doing right now. But if the universe keeps on accelerating in its expansion, if we project forward many, many years into the future, many ages of the universe into the future, so I'm not talking next year or next century or even after the sun consumes the earth in four or five billion years, I'm talking about trillions or even more years in the future. But if the universe just keeps on expanding in an accelerated way, that means at some point, future astronomers on some other planet with their Hubble Space Telescope looking out into the universe, all the galaxies will have receded away from them outside of their observable horizon. They'll literally look out with their telescope and see nothing. They won't even know that the universe is accelerating or expanding or that there's other galaxies. They won't know anything about the universe. That's one very weird thing about the fact uh, of dark energy or the accelerating expansion of the universe because it means that sort of around now, plus or minus some billions of years, we are in a special moment in the universe to be able to observe it and learn things like what is the fate. And that's a little bit problematic, but we only have one universe to study, so we can get away with that. Um, and then even later, even the galaxy it's, itself will start to pull apart because of the expansion. And eventually, you can project all the way into the distant, distant future, and everything will pull apart. So that means the universe will basically die a very empty, cold, dark place. That's depressing <laughs> to me. <laughs> um, but that is our latest, best idea for the fate of the universe. So another key discovery of Hubble was that black holes really do exist, and not just little black holes, monster black holes. In this picture on the right, this giant orange haze with the bright spot to the upper left is a monster galaxy, a few hundred times bigger than our home galaxy, the Milky Way, and you can see this jet of blue material that looks like it's shooting out of the center. It is. It's actually shooting from near the vicinity of a supermassive black hole. We can see this galaxy in this jet with ground-based telescopes, but with Hubble, again, it can see such fine detail, we can zoom into the center, and we can actually not just image gas, but measure the velocity, the motion of gas very near to the center, and this gas is swirling around the center of this galaxy at such speeds that the only thing that can explain this is a black hole 
billions of times the mass of the sun, a billions of times bigger than the sun. And every galaxy we look at, it has the same situation. It has a gigantic, we call them supermassive, or for the public, monster black hole at the center that basically is related, its size is related to the size of the galaxy. Lastly, of Hubble's top five list of discoveries and achievements, and this was also a surprise, is how planetary systems form. Early on, Hubble was pointed towards the Orion Nebula. Probably a lot of you are familiar with the Orion Nebula. It's a popular place to point your telescope and see the little nebula. It's a star-forming region or stellar nursery. And we, with Hubble's exquisite ability to see fine detail, we're going to look at young stars in this star-forming region. And around a lot of these stars, we found disks of material. This is a photo album of lots of these protoplanetary disks. Basically, around the new forming star, you can see in the right-hand picture right here, the white glow. This is at a different color, and so the star is not as obvious. But in both colors of light, the disk of material is very, very obvious. And this is a disk of what I like to call leftover scraps from the formation of that star. And that disk is going to turn into planets and uh, moons and asteroids and comets, just like we have in our solar system, not exactly like the Earth and the Jupiter and so forth, but planets and all the stuff that will orbit that object right there. And just to give you an idea again of how great Hubble's ability to see detail is, I showed a comparison. Here's a pretty picture you could take with a good amateur telescope. I think this was taken by Adam Block, who's a famous amateur uh, astronomy photographer here from Tucson. This is the star-forming region that Hubble explored. It found things that were 1,000 times smaller than this. Literally needles in a haystack. So Hubble's had many great achievements. It's had huge impact. So why was this telescope named after Edwin Hubble? And who was Edwin Hubble? And how was astronomy done back at his time? Well, first of all, he was a great American astronomer. He made two key discoveries that really changed what we know about the universe, changed our understanding of the universe, and ushered in an era of modern cosmology and astronomy. Both of these discoveries, and I'm going to make this point multiple times, back in his day were done at a private, privately funded telescope. So he was working at Mount Wilson at the 100-inch telescope. It was the biggest telescope of the day. This Mount Wilson is just above Los Angeles when it used to be dark skies around Los Angeles. And shortly after Mount Wilson was opened in 1917, in 1923, Hubble made the first of his great discoveries, which is the true nature of galaxies. So on the left is a modern-day gorgeous picture of the Andromeda galaxy, uh, the nearest big spiral galaxy to our own Milky Way. It's very much like the Milky Way. You can think of it as Milky Way's sister galaxy. This is a picture from Hubble's actual observations in 1923 with his writing. And you can see in the upper right-hand corner, there's two little tick marks around. You probably can't even see that little tiny speck. But it's a star that belongs to that cloud of stars right here, the heart of Andromeda. We didn't know that these were galaxies. We thought they were clouds of stars. And he marked VAR in, with an exclamation point because he knew that he had made an important discovery. VAR stands for variable or pulsating star, a star that 
pulses bright faint, bright faint over time. And he knew when he detected that, that that was the silver bullet that allowed him to measure how far away that cloud of stars was. And it turned out this cloud of stars, that object, was far outside of the Milky Way galaxy. In that one moment, the universe became hundreds of times bigger than we thought before then. So he completely changed not only how big is the universe, but the fact that these things are galaxies in their own right, like the Milky Way, separate collections of billions of stars. So then he continues work on galaxies, still at the Mount Wilson 100-inch telescope. Here's a picture of the telescope. And he measured how fast galaxies move. Now, this is the only scientific plot I'm going to show. It's actually one from 1929 from this proceedings. It's his work. What it simply, in simple terms, what it shows is on the bottom, the x-axis, each dot, it tells you how far away the galaxy is. So from left is closer to right is farther away. In the y-axis, it shows how fast the galaxy is moving. And in this case, all the galaxies are moving away from us. So towards the bottom, the galaxies are moving away from us slowly. And towards the top, the galaxies are moving away from us very rapidly. And then he fit a line to the whatever dozen or so galaxies there. And that right there is the same thing you get if you take a loaf of bread and put raisins in it, a, lo a loaf of bread dough, and put raisins in it and put it in your oven. But before you put it in the oven, you measure how far all the raisins are away from each other. You cook it for an hour. You pull it out. And you see how far the raisins move away from each other. And you can actually calculate and make a plot just like that. And you get expansion. That's expansion of the universe. So he discovered expansion of the universe also. Now, he was a great astronomer. And he did make these discoveries. But it's really important to recognize these two people. Because without them, he could not have done these great discoveries. Let's start with Henrietta Swan Leavitt. This is a picture from a few years before. She was a contemporary of Hubble's. She was the scientist, the now famous astronomer, who discovered the true nature of these pulsating stars I talked about that allowed Hubble to measure the distance to that galaxy and allowed the modern astronomers with Hubble Space Telescope images to measure the distance to even farther away galaxies. She wasn't considered an astronomer back in the 19-teens in aughts when she worked at the Harvard College Observatory. She worked for the college observatory director, who was an astronomer. And he hired about a dozen college-educated and mostly unmarried women. They're very bright, but in that time, if you were not married, that was not so good. And so uh, in the contemporary times, and so they put them to work as what they called human computers. They didn't have computers back then. They didn't have calculators. They had slide rules, and they had pen and pencil and paper. And they did very tedious calculations over and over and over and over again for the astronomer. And she did a lot of that work for decades. But in her work, she had the insight to figure out, for instance, the property of these pulsating stars that was so important to our modern understanding of the universe. Secondly, working at another private university, this is also Harvard as a private now university, private college back then, Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff. Vesto Slifer here, it's hard to find, this is about the only picture I can find of this guy. Um, no cell phones back then. So he perfected the art of taking 
light of distant objects, which is already really faint, that's why you need a big telescope to collect the light, and spreading that light into a rainbow. And when you do that, you can learn a lot more about the light other than it's just bright or faint. The most important thing for Hubble is when you spread the light out in its rainbow for a galaxy or a star, you can actually tell how fast the object is moving. And so Hubble used his techniques to measure the speeds to those galaxies and find the expansion of the universe. Besides these unsung hero and heroine, it, we also needed private money back then. Astronomy was done basically by industrial, uh, visionary industrialists like Andrew Carnegie here who wanted to build big things and have America be number one. And also by the amazing sort of vision to build giant telescopes of Dr. George Ellery Hale here, they combined to build the 100-inch telescope on Mount Wilson. At the time, it was the biggest telescope when it opened in 1917 in the world. And I think that they were really motivated in sort of a competition with the Europeans. Because the Europeans, all during the 19th century and even before, and into the early 20th century with people like Einstein, they completely dominated scientific discoveries and innovations. They were the leaders of the world. And Andrew Carnegie and others, they wanted America the U.S. to be the leader of science, and they thought the way to do this was to build the biggest telescopes and make discoveries, and it's true, it worked out. And Edward Hubble, later on, used the same reasoning. He's like, okay, I made all these great discoveries of the 100-inch, but it's limited. If I want to learn more about the universe, I need an even bigger telescope. And so him and Dr. Hale, they lobbied, and finally he drummed up $6 million from the Rockefellers to build the great 200-inch telescope. This telescope, built in Southern California, construction started in the 1930s, and was finally finished in 1948. And I love this picture because you just get an idea of how humongous, this is a monster. You can't even see the whole telescope, and these are people down here inside of the dome. This was the biggest telescope in the world for like the next almost 30 years. And it marks a very interesting time because this is the point in time, 1948, when we switched from purely privately funded research in the United States to public funding. And this was all based on this guy, Vannevar Bush's insights. From lessons from World War II, he wrote this report as the first presidential science advisor to Truman. And in it, he made a very compelling case that if the government puts some money and invests in science, that among other things, it'll benefit our country in many innovations that will boost our economy. And it turned out to really be a great idea. Starting in 1950 with the NSF being founded to fund basic research and science education and then NASA eight years later, this really began in the 1950s, an era where the United States led the whole world in scientific greatness. Now it's important again to point out, before 1950, all research was done at a few elite institutions by a few scientists, mainly uh, by getting money from some rich uh, benefactors. Now many people in the country, the whole country together combined, can participate in the scientific greatness. And we could dream of a world of tomorrow. This idea of a world tomorrow was all over the place in the 1950s and 60s, in literature and newspapers, always talking about the next greatest thing, the next invention. 
And that funding science and having innovation really gave us a can-do spirit that let us dream. It also caused our economy to really blossom. And for the next 30 years or so, we led in space exploration and in scientific research, especially all scientific research, but also in astronomy, astronomical research. So I want to use a couple quick slides to graphically show you just how we led the world in space exploration and astronomy. What I'm going to show you here is in chronological order, the first time that we went by any of the major planets. So flybys, and then landings, and then finally orbits around the eight major planets. And you can see that in almost all cases except a few times where the Russians beat us back during the Cold World, we really dominated the exploration of the major seven planets of the solar system, including all of the first flybys for all of the planets. Likewise, the first at comets and asteroids, we led in many cases. And of course, we went to the moon multiple times. And even recently, this year, we had flybys and missions in orbit um, past two major dwarf planets, one orbiting the asteroid belt series, and one orbiting in the Kuiper belt out beyond the planet Uranus. We finally went all the way out to Pluto. And the New Horizons mission, if we can drum up a little bit of extra money, it's going out of the solar system. And in a couple years, it'll encounter another Kuiper belt object, a smaller, not even a dwarf planet, but a very large comet. Besides exploration of the solar system, we built the first space observatories to detect and analyze and dissect the cosmic message to map the invisible universe. This diagram shows like the surface of the Earth, and here is the atmosphere, and every place where it's like this, that means whatever type of light cannot get to the ground. Only visible light gets to the ground. Mm, infrared sort of gets to the ground in one place, and radio waves get to the ground. Everything else doesn't go through our atmosphere. That's actually good, right? We don't want x-rays to get to the ground. That would be bad. A lot of ultraviolet gets to the light gets to the ground. Then we have a lot of problems with skin cancer and serious sunburns. So we did the first missions for ultraviolet, for x-ray, for gamma rays, for infrared, and for microwaves. All first, all by NASA. We also built what are called the four great space observatories, including the Hubble Space Telescope that's been around for 25 years. Three of these missions, Spitzer and Hubble and Chandra, are still super productive scientific. They, they are the instruments for astronomy that most astronomers want time on. And we did even additional high-impact missions, leading in everything except very recently where the Europeans are starting to wake up and take over, <laughs> take over scientific uh, leadership of the world. All right. So, but the question is, is all this dreaming, what is the cost of it? And even 50 years ago, during the heyday of the Apollo mission, there were people in political power, like this senator, who argued very strongly that we should kill the whole space mission, and we should defund science. We should not be spending federal taxpayer dollars on doing any science at all. And other people at the same time, 
like Nancy Roman here, who many consider the mother of Hubble, she realized, I need to make convincing arguments to the public, like I'm trying to hopefully do tonight, that the cost is not so great and the benefits are huge when we fund in science. And she has this quote, which I love, for the cost of a night at the movies, every American would have 15 years of great and exciting discoveries. And she's talking about the Hubble Space Telescope. She was in charge at NASA on building the telescope. She didn't come up with the idea of Hubble. That was 10 years earlier. But she was the first person at NASA really working on the project to get it going and get it built. So you can see that when we build these things, it actually takes a long time, from the beginning in the 60s until finally launching in 1990. All right, so I'm going to do something a little bit untraditional. And I'm going to ask you all a question, just like I do in my intro class, that's related to this question, how much does all this science greatness, or how much has it cost us, or how much does it cost us right now? And I'm going to give you a hint, which is the entire 25-year Hubble mission price tag was 10 billion bucks. So I'm going to give you a minute to read the question, think about the answers, and then we'll vote on answers in a minute. All right, I want to do this just by simply show of hands, starting with A, the first question, the first answer. How many people think A is the right answer? Okay, keep up for a second, I got to estimate quickly here. Okay, that's about mm, a third. Let's try answer B. Oh, that's about another third. All right, C, that's about 10%. D, almost 10%. And finally, E. All right, so you all are a well-informed audience because basically about two-thirds of you, definitely more than half of you said A or B, and the answer is only two pennies. <laughs> That's what my students do in class when they get the right answer. <laughs> um, all right, so this graph right here shows that our money spent on basic research and also military research and also our money spent on NASA has been going down steadily since the peak of the Apollo program. The graph just shows it in percentage of the federal budget, which is, in other words, is the fraction of each one of your dollars. 2% in the blue over there on the left, 2% is two pennies. Basically, one of your pennies goes to medical research, the National Institutes of Health, to do important research, cure cancer, you know, find a cure for cancer and so forth. That's good. The other penny goes to everything else, all other kinds of branches of science. A pretty big chunk goes to Hubble. This is a little bit misleading because a big portion of Hubble's is also is specifically for spaceflight, which is kind of separate from all. It's not, it's not that astronomy gets half of all the other. But anyways. Um, and here's another factoid that NASA spends basically 10% of the whole world budget on space uh, research. But what does this number actually mean in human terms, this two pennies for every one of your tax dollars? The average American gives NASA about 10 bucks a year. And 10 bucks a year is like a night at the movies for each person, except you also need money for popcorn and soda and treats and all that. All right, so 
is, oh, I know what I want to see. What if we actually simply doubled this budget? Instead of two pennies, we gave four pennies. Imagine the possibilities. Neil deGrasse Tyson, a couple years ago, really pushed to try to double NASA's budget from a half a penny to a penny. And I think, why not double the whole science budget? Help our economy inspire dreams. If we just doubled our science budget, we'd already be on Mars. We'd already be looking, not with robots, but with people for life on Mars. We would have moon bases. And maybe some people would say, so what? It's just kind of like science fiction. But I actually think that Americans really do dream a lot and want to do this sort of exploration. It gives us a sense of adventure, a sense of mystery, a sense of wonder, a sense of building things. And as a way to demonstrate this, during the same period of time that Hubble Space Telescope has been doing its amazing work, these 18 space science fiction movies have grossed just in the US. This is Americans going to the movies and paying at the box office to watch these movies, not video cells, not the whole world, billions of dollars. Basically, half of the whole 25-year Hubble budget has been earned by these 18 movies. So Americans like this stuff. Yeah, we should take a percentage from, from the ticket sales. That's good. Maybe we should. Maybe we should do a campaign at Sci-Fi Movies here. Give a dollar to Hubble on the way. I, I like that. Or to science. All right. I'm almost done here. Um, all right. So all this dreaming, all this great science that we can do, is it really a good investment? Like Anavar Bush uh, put forth back in 1945 after World War II. I say, yes, absolutely. It's the, actually the best investment that the government can make. The evidence is that once NSF was founded, especially in that period of the 1950s and 60s, one of the pieces of evidence is the US economy really boomed. This kind of work employs many people, very high-skilled, very productive people. And moreover, not just, OK, we build something we're going to go to the moon and we invent something along the way that it causes new industries 20 years from now, long-term investment. Actually, when the federal government funds basic research, that money immediately, it doesn't just go to professors and students. It actually goes at a low fraction to professors and students. A lot of the money goes back out into the community to buy goods and services from subcontractors and vendors, both locally around the institutes, but also all over the country. Tens of thousands of companies are impacted every year by basic science uh, research spending by the government. And I think this is really important. When you have this idea of, like, I want to go to Mars, we want to go to Mars, you inspire many scientists and engineers to really think outside of the box. Now, they're just trying to go to Mars. And how does that impact people? It's just us going to Mars. It's, it's just an adventure. But along the way, the things they have to build to get us there are new inventions and new innovations that wind up becoming whole industries here in the country. When you make new things here, when you create new innovations, you keep the jobs and the in in industries. They actually start here. And so it helps our economy, and it keeps high-tech jobs here. So my argument would take Neil deGrasse Tyson's idea of doubling NASA. No, double the whole science budget. Four pennies from the tax dollar. More bold projects. That means the need for more scientists and engineers. 
here's an intangible is that inspires lots of our children to be these scientists and engineers because they see, oh, we're building great things. We can actually go do this. New technologies are created. New industries are created. The economy grows. So we're at a point as far as the future of US astronomy and science where we have to make a decision. We can continue the sort of slow decline that we have been doing all the way since before the Hubble Space Telescope, or we can do our simple doubling from two pennies to four pennies. And just one more factoid to put this in perspective, because a lot of people say it's just politically impossible to even get a little bit more spending on something as helpful in investing to the country as science. And that might be true in this economic time. But in 2008, we gave $750 billion to the bank. And that $750 billion in one year is the entire 60 years almost of NASA's budget. So there was a political will to do that. I, I get that there are differences between the economy was in a bad shape and maybe we really needed to do this. But I'm only talking going from two pennies to four pennies. And if we did that, I would say the sky is the limit. Now these missions, the James Webb Space Telescope is gonna launch in a couple years. It's built, it's basically ready to go. Professors here at Stewart Observatory are actually the PIs of some of the instruments on that telescope. This, the uh, um, Giant Magellan Telescope, thank you. This is gonna be the next biggest telescope in the world, a whole new generation ahead, much, much bigger than the latest biggest telescope. Those mirrors of that telescope are being built in the mirror lab right now. Actually, this week, they're starting mirror number four in the ovens under the football stadium here at UA, uh, U of A at the mirror lab. And hopefully W first. So with these missions and telescopes, we will be looking for the first stars and the first galaxies and learning about them. We haven't figured those out yet. And finding more planets around other stars, maybe even planets like Earth. And hopefully finding out more about dark energy. But with two pennies, we might be able to revive this mission, which was to look for planets like the Earth around other stars and perhaps find if there's life on those planets. Search for life on Mars, not just with robots, but with people. And how about this one? We were motivated in the Cold War to spend a lot of money. NASA got a nickel of every tax dollar during the peak of the Hubble program. Now it gets 10 times less of that. And, you know, I'm not going to fool myself. We, got all, we gave all that money to NASA because we were afraid that the Russians were going to beat us to space and put bombs up in orbit or on the moon. That's what we were afraid of. And so that really drove uh, doing all this research and building new things. But killer asteroids, well, they've come here before, and that's something we should think about. And we could do something about that if we had the budget. So the most important thing to me is doubling or increasing the budget slowly on science over time will inspire the next generation of thinkers and builders and dreamers. And I'll say thank you and show um, roll credits. Very much, Dan. Uh, first of all, before I ask for questions, I have some good news. It cleared up. The telescope is open. And right. in fact, because Professor Campbell on Thursday night wanted everyone to see Pluto, because he was going to talk about Pluto, 
She's got it in the telescope right now. Awesome. I saw Marina. So you'll, you'll see the planet Pluto, excuse me, the dwarf planet Pluto. I'm showing my age. <laughs> the dwarf. Uh, if, if you go to the telescope at the end of tonight's lecture. All right, we have time for questions for Professor McIntosh. Question here. Yes, um, well, the new uh, generation of telescopes, like the giant Mag Magellan telescope, are using adaptive optics. And um, uh, what will uh, the, the new generation with adapted adaptive optics be able to do that the Hubble can't do and, and vice versa. What what role is there still for space-based telescopes? So I'm not I'm not sure. So adaptive optics are basically when you mechanically wiggle one of the mirrors in a telescope to correct for the um, blurring effects of the Earth's atmosphere, which is why Hubble was so great. It's above the atmosphere so it doesn't get the atmosphere blurred. We could do this on ground-based telescopes where we have the atmosphere to deal with. We wiggle one of the mirrors, and that helps us to see even as good as the Hubble Space Telescope or better in terms of fine detail. But it's limited, so far the technology has been around for about two decades. It's limited in which objects we can look at because we usually need a bright source nearby. Whether or not, so the big telescopes like the Giant Magellan, it will have adaptive optics, but it also will have many, um, projects done on it without adaptive optics. The main point of the Giant Magellan Telescope is that it's a light bucket. It is a humongous collector of light, and we will do things like take, uh, smear the light of the rainbow to very distant galaxies and many, many thousands of them. And I'm not sure if the space, like James Webb, I don't think it has adaptive optics. I, don't, that's, I guess it doesn't need it, so. Yeah, it doesn't need it. It's, a, it's infrared and it's also above the atmosphere. So. In some ways, ground-based telescopes can compete with Hubble, um, but not in the visible light. And we, we also have ground-based infrared telescopes, and we have space-based infrared telescopes. It's basically a trade-off between being above the atmosphere where you can look anywhere you want and get that fine detail, or being on the ground and being limited to where you can look. But on the ground, we have the benefit of making much, much larger telescopes than even the James Webb Space Telescope. Other questions? So, so the oh, hold on. Let me give you the microphone. Yeah, you use the mic so that the podcast. So the, the service missions have stopped, given that the hmm. uh, the shuttle is working anymore. Right. How how long can the Hubble continue to perform, given that it's not being serviced? That's a great question. So how so? Um, I just served on. A panel in June where at in Baltimore where we actually review proposals for who gets to put their projects on the Hubble Space Telescope for the upcoming year and we had a presentation before that they talked about that so the best case scenarios Hubble will last for another 10 years that the instruments on it are doing pretty well the batteries were changed out in the last servicing mission the gyros which keep the telescope pointed those were all traded changed out we were down to two at the time of the mission now we have, I think, four, but one had failed. So mostly it looks good. I think worst case scenario is maybe three or four years. One of the sad things about the last mission, though, is they put a handle on the back of Hubble. So in the future, when Hubble is no longer any good, we won't just let its orbit decay. We'll actually go up with a rocket, attach to Hubble, and drive Hubble into the ocean where it won't hit anybody. Question here. Um, yeah. The, um, uh, Hubble Space Telescope was able to determine that the universe is accelerating attributed to dark energy, which means that it's um, 
involves the second derivative with respect to time. Is the Hubble Space Telescope capable, or maybe the future James Webb um, Telescope, able to determine the rate of acceleration change? In, in other words, the, uh, the third derivative with respect to time, namely, at some time in the future, is the acceleration going to be equal to or greater than or less than the present acceleration? So the experiment, you're right. The, the fact that it's accelerating is, as you said, the second derivative with respect to time. That basically means its speed is speeding up. Uh, but the experiment that they won the Nobel Prize for actually does tell us how, what the rate of that change is. So in the past, five, six, seven billion years ago, it wasn't accelerating nearly as fast. And so we can compare then to now, and we can project to the future, we'll continue to do that experiment over and over again to get it more precise, and the James Webb Space Telescope is one of the uh, instruments we'll do that with. There are other missions that are set up specifically to try to do that as well. For instance, the, for instance, the Europeans are doing one called Euclid that hopes to measure that, but also maybe get an idea of what the heck dark energy is. Any other questions? We have one back here. You know, to what do you see as the possibilities of, like, the International Space Station, an international consortium in terms of doing what we want to do? Granted, it'd be better if we did it on our own, but, you know, that may be a more practical application. So, so that's a great question also. That actually is already happening. We are combining resources. For instance, with the Hubble Space Telescope, we built it and we run it, but the Europeans pitch in for part of it, and the Europeans get to use they could apply for time. Um, one of the biggest telescopes in the world is on Mount Graham, the LBT, the Large Binocular Telescope. That is an international uh, collaboration. There are many international collaborations, and there are many that are uh, uh, proposed for the future. As well as the giant Magellan Telescope that yeah, you talked that, about. Yeah, I thought that as well. Wasn't sure. Any other questions? If not, oh, okay, one more question down here. Well, I think you're preaching to the congregation to the choir, as yes. far as, <laughs> as um, funding for these kinds of programs. Do you um, get an opportunity to preach to the people that could make that um, come about? Oh, to the politicians. That's a great question. No, that's <laughs> that is a very good question. Uh, so far, no, but I do plan on doing that. That is something I think I should do. I, I do feel as a scientist that it's really important to come give public talks. There's a huge interest in science, basically across all political spectrum. Um, but I also think as scientists we should try to educate the public, give them some ideas about how little it really costs and how great the benefits are. But talking to the politicians themselves, yes, I mean I do my writing my letters and writing occasional op-eds for a newspaper, but I need to start talking to those people, and I do have that planned, actually. It's something I should do. All right. I hope that I can see many of you this Thursday night for Professor Campbell's lecture on nonlinear science. If not, our next Monday lecture will be on October the 5th. It'll be a lecture about radio astronomy from a retired professor from the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. The telescope is open. If you want to go see Pluto right now, please do. I'll stamp student assignments down here. Let's thank Professor McIntosh one more time. Thank you.